1969, Hattie Ford lost her first husband, Dean Taylor Jr., to the war in Vietnam, when the helicopter he was piloting was shot down by Viet Cong soldiers in the tiny hamlet of Tan Ba. Fifty years later, Hattie and her now husband, Jim Ford, himself a veteran of that war, decided to travel to Vietnam in hopes of finding the site where Dean spent his final moments. But they never imagined they'd end up meeting one of the soldiers responsible for Dean's death. Welcome to The Day We Met. Stories about first encounters, what came before, and what happened next. I'm Joe Van Eck. This is part two of Dean, Hattie, Jim, and the Man in Blue. If you look at a map of Vietnam, you can see that it's a long, thin country. It's a bit wider at the northern end, where the city of Hanoi is located, and then curves like a boot in the southern end, where you'll find Ho Chi Minh City, formerly known as Saigon. Tan Ba is roughly in the middle, but Hattie and Jim began their journey in Hanoi, arriving there on January 11th, 2019. I was really curious to see that part of the country. I'd been through South Vietnam and Laos, Thailand uh, during the war, but I had never flown in North Vietnam. The one place I wanted to stay away from was Hanoi, especially the Hanoi Hilton. Mm-hmm. One of the places we stopped it was, was a little restaurant, a little noodle restaurant where President Obama had had dinner with um, Anthony mm-hmm. Bourdain, and there was a picture of the two of them uh, on the wall, and the table where they had sat was kind of encased in, you know, plexiglass with their table setting there, and nobody sits at that table anymore. That was kind of fun. Da Nang was the next stop for Hattie and Jim. They arrived on January 14th. Jim had flown into the city numerous times during the war, but seeing it for the first time in over four decades, he was surprised by how much it had changed. Vietnam was just all green. You know, it was all jungle, it was rice paddies, huts, mostly to live in. And when we flew into Da Nang this time, it was astounding to me, even from the air flying in, to look down and see modern buildings, roads, freeways, just extraordinary changes. Around Da Nang, it was a dirty, dusty base at that time, and the airports at Da Nang and Saigon now look like O'Hare. So it was just a a real shock to me to see how well that country has done in 50 years and how far they've come. Throughout their travels, Jim, when given the opportunity and when it felt appropriate, would strike up conversations with locals and ask them about the war. He spoke to both young and old, and one conversation in particular stuck with him. We were in Hoi An. It was, I think, the the night before we went out to Tan Ba and uh, talking with a young waiter there. He couldn't be more than probably a teenager, maybe 20. Somehow in the conversation, uh, I guess I had asked him about his relatives and He'd had a grandfather who was killed fighting uh, for the North, for the Viet Cong, and told me that his grandmother had never remarried. And of course, his mother had uh, grown up without a father. 
I, I told him how sorry I was, and he said, well, it, it's okay. And I said, no, it isn't okay. And then really just lost it for a little bit there. That, that triggered the suppressed emotions I think he'd had for 50 years. I didn't realize in a lot of ways how much baggage I was carrying around from this war. Hattie and Jim hired local drivers and guides to help them navigate their way through Vietnam. New faces would greet them at every stop on their trip. And when they got to Da Nang, they met Thong. He was, well, he was the ideal guide, I'll say, for, for a, an American soldier coming back to visit. Thong would show up each morning wearing some type of U.S. military-themed clothing item, a hat, a shirt, and they got the sense that as a teenager... He had spent a lot of time hanging around American GIs in various night spots throughout Da Nang. Thong was a huge fan of American music from that era. Thong loved their music and knew all the songs and then and still does now <laughs> and could always find up an appropriate song for whatever little topic might come up in discussion or whatever. He was frequently singing or, or reciting a line from one of the old songs. It was very entertaining, really. On January 15, 2019, the 50th anniversary of Dean's death, Hattie and Jim set out to find the site where his helicopter went down. When you guys were on your way there, I mean, were you feeling anxious or, you know, nervous? Curious. Yeah, I think that's the best term. Uh, I I didn't have any uh, anxiety about it. I wasn't nervous. After all the research I had done, uh, I was looking forward to seeing what we could find. I, I think that emotional preparation sort of had happened as we as we started that day. We didn't know exactly what we would find, but this was going to be a day of significance to me. Tanba was located about two hours south of Da Nang by car. When they finally arrived, they found a small village comparable in size to a rural crossroads here in the United States. It had a few small shops, and Jim estimated that the village ran no more than a quarter mile end to end, with a population around 200, give or take. It's a tiny little place. Meticulous planning had gone into the trip, months spent researching the site of Dean's crash. But once they were there in Tanba, they were basically winging it. We didn't, we didn't have a plan. My hope was that maybe we could find someone who would remember it 50 years later. I would think even during wartime, it was extremely rare to have a helicopter come down in the middle of your little hamlet. And that anyone who was alive at that time and who had been there would be able to remember it and point us to the exact spot. But that was the most that I had hoped for. Thong, I think, had more of a plan of how he was going to operate. Thong instructed their driver to stop at a small government building located at the entrance of the village. When Thong had the driver parked there, I assumed we would go into that little building and talk to somebody there and ask some, some official, but that was not Thong's plan at all. Basically said, you know, you be quiet, I'm going to do this. Just follow me. And he started asking people that he ran into. When asking people in the street didn't work, Thong started going house to house. And eventually, they found someone who was willing to talk. 
and there was a lady sweeping her driveway. So Thong tells her, you know, we're looking for somebody that might remember this instance. And she puts her broom down and says, you'll follow her. And we go across the street to what is her grandfather's house. You know, they invite us to have a seat and so on. And she disappears for a minute and comes back with teacups and a pot of hot tea. I mean, it's red. She didn't have to heat it up. It was ready. So we had tea and Thong talked with with her grandfather, but this man didn't know anything. The woman was a local teacher. She invited Hattie, Jim, and Thong to come with her. She hopped on a scooter and they followed in their car. We were sent to the home of a man who was about 90. He'd had a stroke and couldn't talk with us, but his nephew was there, and his nephew is my age and had been a Viet Cong soldier. From here on out, the nephew is referred to as the man in green. Again, as soon as we go in there, he brings out the teacups and the hot tea, and we sit and have tea together, have casual conversation a bit. After a while, we explained, you know, why we were there and that we hoped someone could take us to the spot. There was not a hesitation on his part to share with us until Jim pressed him the second time about, you know, we really would like to go to this place. Do you know where this helicopter crash took place? Of course, this is out of the blue. Fifty years later, two Americans show up about you know, an incident where a helicopter crew was killed. And I think he was a little bit on guard, but I think he began to soon realize that we weren't there to uh, cause any trouble for anyone. We weren't just out sightseeing and, oh, did, you know, what happened in your town in the war? You know, we, we actually had the personal connections. Hattie and Jim sat and talked with the man in green for about a half an hour. At some point, they showed him a picture of Dean and it seemed to have an effect on him. He eventually agreed to take them to the spot, but there was someone he had to check with first. And we thought maybe he's got to go to the government or get permission, but he got on his motor scooter and rode off, and a few minutes later came back with another former Viet Cong soldier riding on the back of the scooter. We call him the man in blue, and it turns out that that was the man who had actually Uh, been there at the scene of the helicopter. The man in blue got into the van with Hattie and Jim, and they followed the man in green on his motor scooter. It was a short trip, no more than a quarter of a mile. They stopped the vehicles, got out, and walked a path that ran about 100 yards, landing them in a sugarcane field. And that's when... The man in blue stepped into the cane field and pointed to the ground and said, this is the spot. The story will continue in just a moment. Hattie, when you're at the spot, did you at all imagine Dean there and what he may have been going through? Well, not exactly. There was um, a sort of visualization of the helicopter being being there, and and Dean and his crew being out, out you know, away. I mean, you could almost, yes, I, I guess I could almost see that. But I, I guess I don't know if it was a matter of my brain protecting me or whatever. But I, I didn't visualize there actually being shot. But, but that, that was the place where Dean was, and that's where his last few moments of life were. 
yes, I did have something of a, a vision of that as I was there. It was while we were standing in that site that the guy in the blue shirt began to tell us about Dean's morning, those last hours. On the morning of January 15, 1969, Dean and his crew took off from the Chulai base around 8 a.m. local time. The man in blue knew where they had flown, and he knew they were on their way back to the base when they were shot down around 9 a.m. He was at the spot in the sugarcane field within minutes of the helicopter crashing. Rain clouds had set in, and, and that small helicopter had come, tried to come down just a little below the, the clouds, and it put him within range of this gunfire. And so he'd been sh the, the helicopter had been disabled you know, some small distance from where we were. Chulai was about 20 miles away from Tanba. Given that distance, Jim was surprised the man in blue knew as much as he did. And you wonder, how in the world did this Viet Cong soldier? I guess there are two possibilities. One is that they had lines of communication that we didn't even dream of, that he would know where that helicopter took off and when. Hmm. But since it has occurred to me, this soldier didn't speak English. There may have been someone there who spoke English who interrogated them before they were killed. And it's possible that they were told by the crew where they had taken off and at what time. And I wish if I had uh, had an opportunity to go and talk with this guy again, that I, we could pinpoint just how it was that he knew all these facts. And you were certain that all three uh, members of that, that flight crew were alive, Dean and the other two individuals, they were both alive when they crashed? Yes, yeah, he made a, he yeah, made a yeah. safe landing. Yeah. Uh, the helicopter was disabled, and then he was able to, to auto-rotate, glide down, and it may have been a hard landing. I don't think that's the easiest thing to do, but it, the helicopter clearly landed in one piece, and all three were alive. Do you know the mission that they were on? Were they just, was it transport, or...? No. This was a light observation helicopter, and... The, I didn't really realize how these things were used until recently, but uh, these were very small, very light helicopters that had a capacity of only three occupants altogether. And their objective, for the most part, was to get down, fly low, try to get the Viet Cong to shoot at them so that they could locate the positions and then call in the gunships to attack. Basically, they were bait. There probably wasn't a more dangerous job in Vietnam than being a loach pilot. Their death rate was just horrendous. Jim's right. Officially designated the OH-6 Cayuse, the helicopters were made of thin plexiglass and metal. They got their nickname from the required acronym LOH, Light Observation Helicopter. Out of the 1,422 loaches built for the Army, 964 of them went down in Vietnam. That's nearly 70%. We don't know exactly what he was doing on that day, whether he was doing that particular operation or not, but it was an observation helicopter. It, it was not a gunship. Uh, they had some small arms probably, which would be basically useless against any kind of a force with assault weapons. Hattie and Jim had learned a great deal about the crash from the incident reports he'd researched. 
and now the man in blue was providing them with information they never would have gotten otherwise. But there was one detail that still puzzled Jim. One thing I could not figure out was why they had stayed with the helicopter. You know, the first thing you, you learn in escape and evasion is wherever you go down, you get away from there. If you come down in a parachute, you ditch the parachute and you take off. If you're down in an airplane or a helicopter, you get away and you hide until help comes. And these three, Dean and his two crew members, had stayed there with the helicopter. And the Viet Cong soldier said, well, one of them had broken a leg, either had been hit by a bullet, I don't know, or had uh, broken the leg in a, in a hard landing. So the other two crew members, and we don't know which one had the broken leg, but the other two would not leave. And that's why they were there when the Viet Cong showed up. And I think they were very quickly, all three were shot and killed. And then this Viet Cong soldier said that and I don't know that he acted alone. I'm not 100% sure that he was the shooter. But after they were killed, he set the helicopter on fire. He was uh, supposed to strip the bodies of rings and watches and so on, anything that had value. But he was afraid that help was going to be there. And I'm sure that it was as quickly as help could get there. And he didn't want to be around when the gunships arrived. So he just took off running mm. and told us, well, he, he wishes now that he'd taken time to strip the watches and rings, because if he had, he'd be able to give them back to us now. Oh, wow. But they told him, well, we, we know you didn't strip them because the, the rings and watches were shipped back to the bodies. And, and Jim, what was it about the way the man in blue was speaking that made you feel like he not only had been present, but likely had pulled the trigger? Fong, our interpreter, talked with these soldiers more than he interpreted. So they had more conversation than, than we were a party to. And afterwards, he said the man in blue, he was convinced, was the, the one who had actually shot them. Now, that's not 100%. And it could be that there were others who assisted him. I, I don't know all of those details, but he certainly participated. Whether he acted alone or not, I don't know. The night before they came to Tanba, Hattie mentioned to Jim that she wished she had brought something from home to leave at the site of Dean's crash to honor his memory. And so Jim suggested she do what they do in the Jewish faith and leave a stone. She found one she liked leaving the hotel that morning. It wasn't anything pretty or polished, but it would do. And so while Jim listened, as Thong talked to the man in green and the man in blue, Hattie quietly removed the stone from her pocket and placed it on the spot. We, we were finding what we'd come for, looking for, and I guess there was a, some feeling of satisfaction almost in that. You know, our, our efforts have paid off. We're actually going to be able to visit this spot. This will be, this will be great to be in, in this place and, and, and actually be able to pay a final tribute to Dean in and, and, and the place where he died. I felt confident that there would be some people in that little village who remembered and, if they were willing, could take us to the spot. And the thought had occurred to me that you know, there is a chance the man who 
shot them or the men who shot them are still alive in this area somewhere. But the possibility of actually locating one and being able to talk to him seemed extraordinarily remote to me. I, I, even though the thought had occurred to me, I really did not expect that at all. Some people might hear this story and, and wonder, I mean, you never felt any anger or any frustration or really any anger toward these people who had a part in ending Dean's life. Absolutely not. The people there were so, the people all over the country are really nice, friendly, cordial people. And to, be, to walk up to these soldiers who were fighting for their country uh, and have them willing to share with me what they knew about my husband's death to give me that, that final bit of completion to his story. I mean, that really, that's the completion of, of Dean's life was right there in that spot. And for them to share that with me, I mean, why would I be angry or feel any, they were, and, and in fact, at one point, I think probably the man in the green shirt, when we were back in his home, he said, you know, that, that was war and that was my job. We were, we were all doing our jobs. And I, I don't think you can describe it any other way. And it has occurred to me a lot of times that there was no reason that Dean, I mean, Dean and all the others who died in that war missed the wonderful life they would have had otherwise. And that was, they were deprived of that. But I, I, there's no reason, any more reason for me to be angry with them, I think, than for them to be angry, not, not with me for any person, the personal reason, but Americans were killing Vietnamese all over and the Vietnamese are killing Americans all over. You just, that, that's war and that's horrible. So my feeling toward these men were, was gratitude. According to the National Archives, over 58,000 Americans lost their lives in the Vietnam War. 61% were under the age of 21. Canada, South Korea, Thailand, Australia, and New Zealand all lost people fighting for South Vietnam. In 1995, Vietnam finally released their official estimate of casualties from what they refer to as the American War. Two million civilians, 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers, and between 200 and 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers. My interviews with Hattie and Jim were recorded last summer, but just a few weeks ago, as I was finishing up this story, Jim reached out to me. He'd been cleaning out their basement when he happened to find Dean's letters to Hattie stored away in an old hat box. Hattie thought the letters were long gone, and she hadn't read them in nearly 50 years. In one of his final letters, Dean wrote that Christmas Day 1968 was especially hard. It got better in the afternoon when he was assigned to guide another helicopter to an island about 15 miles off the coast. He thought it was the most beautiful place he had ever seen, and the people were so nice. It lifted his spirits, and that made Hattie happy. In the last letter he ever wrote, dated January 14, 1969, 10.10 p.m., Dean said he'd received four letters from Hattie that day. Letters and packages from home made his existence there tolerable. Just hours later, First Lieutenant Dean Taylor Jr., 22, of Atlanta, Georgia, and his crew, Captain Bruce Bowles, 27, of Boise, Idaho, and First Lieutenant Jan Christensen, 21, of Austin, Minnesota, were killed. 
Vietnam was a scary place. It was uh, one of uh, horrors and danger, and I was extraordinarily lucky to come home alive. I had one couple really close calls, and I, and I lost friends there. I lost a roommate uh, when I was over there. I've had bad dreams, and they've continued for, you know, 50 years. Every once in a while, I'd, I'd find myself back there. To go back now and see what a, you know, by all appearances, a happy, prosperous, peaceful country it is, I, I think was some resolution for me as well, some closure. I haven't had a dream about it since, so maybe that's a good sign. Mm -hmm. I, I think now when I think of Vietnam, I will think of it more as it is today than as it was 50 years ago. Nothing really gave me that final sense of completion, I guess, maybe is the, would be a good word, as much as being in that little, the edge of that little village in Tanba and hearing those details of Dean's last hours um, as a result of the efforts of my, my now husband. It didn't really totally dawn on me until we were very close to the time for the trip, just how much he'd worked on this and that we really might be, might be able to go to the spot where Dean died. Now, Jim Ford is not a real expressive, emotional man, and you don't often see signs of affection, and so certainly not publicly that you see in some couples. But for him to put the effort and the time into this trip for me, I just think is about as great an expression of love and devotion as any woman could expect from her husband. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. You're quite welcome. It's been welcome. our pleasure. The Day We Met is a Floating Machine production. It's written, produced, and edited by me, Joe Vanek. The theme song was written and composed by Timothy Nordwin. Original cover art by Elena Flores. The episode was mixed by Dan Kanopka. Music courtesy of BMG and Vanekor. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the socials at The Day We Met Pod. And please join us next time for more stories about the day we met. If you or someone you know have a story to share, email us at submissions at thedaywemetpod.com.